0: to Nanny Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 31, Monstrous Regiment. Episode 31. We have 10 books left.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. We
0: are three quarters of the way through this series. How does that make you feel?
1: I feel like we have to start some sort of like ominous like countdown clock now with each successive episode.
0: But I feel like it needs to be ridiculous, like as provided the disc world, like it needs to be like a bloody stupid Johnson countdown device of some Mm. kind, like it wasn't designed to be a countdown device, but that's what it is is
1: now. Yeah. Yeah. Back (laughs) when I was going out with my ex, like we started going out in during lockdown, like the initial lockdown in 2020. And I don't know what it was like in America, but here in Ireland first, it was like you couldn't go further than two kilometers from your house. And then they like let that up to five. This is like for personal reasons, like if you had to go shopping, especially if you're in the countryside, you could go further because it would be like the big cases where the shop could be like miles away from you. So then like three months in. They allowed intercounty travel, so I was like able to go and see her then. But so I was, like, doing a countdown, and I did this, like, each time leading up to, like, when we were going to see each other before I, like, moved up to Dublin to the same town as her. But I was doing, like, different countdowns. The first one was just, like, fingers, but, like, I was starting off with 10. It really confused her how I had, like, a picture of both my hands on the table showing the, like, numbers. (laughs) And what I was doing was I was putting my phone in my mouth. And turning it onto video and then putting my hands out on the desk and like holding it still in my mouth. And then I would take it out. And then I would go into the video and take a screenshot of the appropriate film.
0: Wow, this is like very complex.
1: (laughs) The other ones were real simple shit. Like so she gave me a copy of I'm the Messenger by Mark Zusak to read, which involves playing cards. And so I did like a playing card countdown for one that was fairly simple. I got a bunch of matches. I got 10 matches and each day I would burn down one. So it was like this line of burning down matches. But the first one was completely and utterly ludicrous.
0: You, you were like contorting your body to, to, get, to get the perfect shot.
1: <laughs> I full on had my phone in my mouth.
0: I'm not sure I would do that. That's, that's commitment to, to a bit.
1: Yeah, exactly. Look, there's, it, it, there's one thing you got to know about me is I am committed to the bit no matter what it is.
0: I do know this about you. And that is why we are friends, because commitment to bits is a very important value for me.
1: Look, what is a long term friendship if not commitment to a bit?
0: It's a- That is absolutely true. I feel like that is now my definition of friendship. It is commitment to a bit.
1: I'm going to tweet that. Now. I'm going to tweet that right now.
0: <laughs> you should. You absolutely should. Well, let's talk about a group of friends or people who become friends (laughs) in Monstrous Regiment. What a segue. What a segue. I feel proud of that. But first, a little background information. Monstrous Regiment is, of course, the 31st Discworld book. It is the fourth book in the Industrial Revolution's branch of the Discworld. The last one we read in that branch was The Truth. So it's it's been a little bit since we've revisited this branch, although I will say this branch is not quite as interconnected as some of the other branches that we've read in the past yes
1: if the truth is the third one what are the first two
0: moving pictures was the oh, first right. one yeah. and i had this pulled up the amazing maurice and his educated rodents is was that
1: really mm-hmm. industrial revolutions what how
0: I mean, these are all made-up categories, so this is just me taking it from like what most people listed as. I think it's because it's loosely related to some of the other books in here. The this particular branch seems to specifically deal with changes in government and changes in technology that's happening all over the Discworld. So I think that's why they put Maurice in there is because there's that change, you know, with the government. At the end of that book, but you could very easily classify Maurice under a couple of branches, I think.
1: Be the one and only Maurice book. Here's the thing that was apparently going to be a sequel to Maurice that was like planned before Sir Terry died, where Maurice was a ship's cat. I don't know how accurate this is. This is something I heard while talking to a Discworld fan. I not
0: really know anything about this, so I would be curious to do maybe a little research on that and see see what we can find out. The interesting thing about Monstrous Regiment, Monstrous Regiment takes its name from a 16th century tract by John Knox, um, who was a Scottish preacher, theologian. The text itself is called the first blast of the trumpet against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. At the time, both Scotland and England had women rulers. So Mary, Queen of Scots, was ruling in Scotland and Elizabeth I was ruling in England. And Knox believed that women ruling countries was contrary to the natural order of things. And so he wrote this whole pamphlet to explain that, especially because he was actually arguing against John Calvin, who said it was okay in certain situations for women to rule. So he, this was sort of a rebuttal against um, Calvin's ideas about women and ruling. That kind of introduces some of the main ideas in this particular text, so I think it's interesting that he chose that specific name, the monst- Monstrous Regiment, Monstrous Regiment of Women. There has been one adaptation. There was a 2014 state- stage adaptation, but I, I'm not completely sure. I've seen references to it, but I don't know exactly who put on the adaptation. So I'd be really curious if any of our listeners out there know about this adaptation, have seen this adaptation. Please let us know. I would I would like to talk about it at some point. But I didn't find any other rec- records of other adaptations of this particular book. Quick summary In the war torn conservative country of Borogravia, young innkeeper's daughter Polly worries that her brother has been captured by the enemy. So she cuts her hair, dons menswear, and enlists in the famous Ins and Outs Regiment to join the war effort to find him. Only war isn't as advertised, and there may be more to her fellow soldiers than at first appears. Okay. So I'm really curious to know your thoughts about this novel. This is only the second time I've read this particular book. I read it the first time when I was a teenager, and it didn't really grab my attention the way that, say, the watchbooks had grabbed my attention. I thought it was fine. But rereading this book now in my 30s, this book has gone way up in my estimation. I think I get what he's doing a little bit more now in this book. And I, I think But I think at the end of this podcast, um, when we read all 41 books, we're going to have to do an episode like ranking Discworld books. This has definitely gone up in my rankings of Discworld books. But Nigel, what are your first thoughts on these books? I
1: really, I don't know. I found it really hard to get into.
0: Really? Okay. I'm interested. Why was it difficult to get into?
1: Uh, I'm not sure, because, like, I understand what he's doing. It's You know, it's not like in your case where when you first read it, you didn't understand and appreciate what Cratchit was doing as much as you do now. Like, I understand and can recognize the themes, but just the plot of it, I kind of really didn't care for.
0: What was it about the plot that didn't speak to you? Was it just too, I mean... A lot of people like this book, but there have been I did read some reviews where people said that they thought it was a little bit too chunky or clunky. Is that kind of your opinion or was there something else about it that didn't work for you?
1: It it's not that it's boring the plot, but it's like it it's kind of a no, for me it's like a nothing plot in service of really good themes where like the watch books have really engaging plots in service of good themes and then like you know because then on the the flip side of that then you have like some of the rinse books which are just like they don't really have themes and the plots are kind of boring so this is like a middle ground between good themes and good plot like if we were to make a like a scatter graph or something
0: now i'm like very curious so the plot to you doesn't is boring but you liked the thematic elements
1: of the book. Yeah.
0: Like what he was specifically talking about.
1: There was a, yeah, like it had a lot to say. And I definitely think, uh, and this is something obviously we'll get into in detail later, the whole like gender politics aspect of it is that, And it's definitely like a step up from equal rights.
0: Bring up equal rights. Yeah.
1: Even stuff like just the question, can a whole nation be mad or can, can a whole nation be insane? Even things like that is are really interesting things to consider, especially like with the history of mob mentality and the death of the mind, and that kind of like collective malevolence that we've seen in other Discworld books. There's loads of like interesting themes and thematic follow throughs, but I like I wish anything else had happened. It, this is it feels like. I really enjoy The Lord of the Rings, but this feels like what other people criticize The Lord of the Rings for. It's just being sort of like a load of wandering around with occasional things happening.
0: There isn't as much excitement in this book as maybe you would expect from a book about war. A lot of the actual things that happen, like the like the actual fighting or the actual like subterfuge, happen really in the last third of the book. And this is a long book. It is one of the longer... Discworld novels. I believe my copy is almost 500 pages long, so it, it is definitely a chunk.
1: My first edition is 352. I am so, like, so jealous kind of your of... first edition. <laughs> it, I mean, I I just mean that it's like like originally came out in the kind of taller one at 352 pages. So, like you have the kind of rough cover copies, right?
0: The The hardcovers. Yeah. So they're a little bit yeah. chunkier anyway. Yeah. So, it, but it is still a long book. Um, there is a lot in this book, but it, a lot of it, like you said, is kind of them wandering around trying to find their way to the rest of the army. And there is a lot of, there's a lot of introspection too in this book because the main character Polly is really kind of struggling with you know, not, not struggling with like what she's doing necessarily or the implications of it. It's more that she's, she's trying to figure out kind of her place in, like you said, this nation that has very specific rules for women. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of talking in this book and there's a lot of reflection in this book as well. Let's go ahead and dive right in. So I also think this book, I mean, the premise of this book is very, it's not a new premise. The idea of a woman dressing up as a man to go to war. I mean that's that's Mulan, right? And I, I I don't even think Mulan is the only version of it, although I think it's probably the most famous version because of Disney mainly.
1: But it is also based off of like an actual historical thing.
0: Yes. I mean, absolutely.
1: Greatly narrativized, though.
0: So, I do think that it is incredibly funny that she keeps finding out <laughs> Other people in her squad, and then later finding out that, like, a lot of other people in the army are actually all women. What did you think about kind of that take on this particular plot device?
1: It felt nearly ridiculous after a certain amount. Certainly, you know?
0: eventually. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then, because then you kind of like, you kind of half expect it, and then it doesn't give you it for some of them, you know, where it's like, It'll do it'll do a couple where it'll be like, oh, Wazer and Lofty, you know, whatever. They're they're actually women, and it's like, oh, okay, cool. And then you get a couple more of them, and it's like, right. And then it's just sort of like you know, then it'd be like, Oh, well, we don't really know about carborundum, and then it turns out no Carborundum's actually jade, even though they're like, Well, it's hard to tell what trolls, and then you get like the self-identifying moment and it's like fine and then slightly later on then you have the reveal of Igorina, and it's like right okay and by the time you get to the high command it's just sort of like oh okay yep that you know it's not i don't know i didn't find it funny or like revelatory at that stage it just sort of felt like i don't know nearly like an snl bit that went on for too long where it's just like oh they're actually all women you know because then it's like like when you get the reveal of maledicta it's like it really feels tacked on i i will say though the reveal with jack room at the end i enjoyed that that was good
0: i think work a little better than others yeah because, yeah, it does get to the point of absurdity, especially when Jack Grum at the end sends out everyone but like a third of the officers. And then he's like, you're all women. Like, <laughs> um, so why are you doing this? Which is a really interesting question that I definitely want to talk about as well. Uh, you know, if there's so many women in this army, then why are they policing themselves like this? Which is this a really good I think that a really good question that comes up in this book, but I will say that some of them, I think the point of this is not only the absurdity of it as it keeps going on. I think also we're supposed to take away from this, that like Borogravia has been at war for so long that there just aren't enough men. Yeah. A lot of their men have died. And so like you find these women who are sort of picking up the slack in terms of their military because they're just they're just all the men have died in service of this war that none of them really completely understand.
1: Again, that's something that I understand the thing because that's something they introduced early on that, you know, like at the start, all these men go off like like hundreds of men go off. And then all that really comes back is is coffins and widows. Uh, And again, it's in service of the fact that they've been fighting this war for so long. And like their god is dead. The Duchess is dead. But they're still out fighting because war is really all they know. But it doesn't... Again, it's like I didn't enjoy the execution. I enjoyed what it was like signifying.
0: What were the ones that really worked for you? So you said Jackram worked for you, which I agree. And I definitely want to talk about Jackram. Were there any other of like reveals that worked pretty well?
1: Shufti, whose real name is, is Al- no Alice is Wazer. What's Shufti's real name? Betty. Betty. Both, both of those and lofty, like the first couple you get, because there's a lot that they have to say, I think about, like women's positions in borough and then like obviously what that's holding a mirror to in our world and then the rest of them kind of just felt like you know tacked on in that sort of no i'm spartacus you know
0: no i completely understand i i thought that the tonker lofty which i can't even really remember their names like their 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 women names because i they seem to prefer tonker and lofty and so that's kind of what they go by I, i thought that they were fascinating because i liked the inversion where polly realizes that lofty is a woman and thinks oh well she's following her man to war because she's clearly like in love with tonker and is like you know, close to Tonker and follows him around everywhere. And then when she finds out that Tonker is a woman, and she's talking to Maledict at the time about it, because Maledict tells her, "Oh yeah, Tonker is a woman." You know, she's she says, "But but you know, Lofty and her and and Maledict is kind of like, yeah, your world is opening up, isn't it? Like I I think Tonker and uh, Lofty are the disc's first like open lesbian couple that we really have. Yeah. I mean, open." In the sense that, like, they're clearly in a relationship, even though they're pretend- both pretending to be men.
1: Yeah, I mean, have we had any real, like, explicitly, or like, explicit MLM couples? I
0: think in the there's disc been any so explicit ones. The closest one that we've gotten have been like dwarf couples that we that you and I privately thought were MLM, but yeah, nothing, nothing that was actual text.
1: Because, like, that's the thing. It's not re- it's never really, like, addressed. I, even in Monstrous Regiment, it's never, like, expi- like, because, like you say, they kind of nearly prefer being perceived and identifying as men. But at the same time, you don't need to draw, like, explicitly draw attention to the fact that your characters are queer for it to be queer rep. Like, you mm-hmm. don't need to... Put a big spotlight on them and go, look, there's your representation.
0: It just seems to me to be. I mean, there's so many queer themes in Pratchett, and we've talked about them before, and they're not particularly subtle, you know, but they are still like, you know, not necessarily openly queer. This to me is like the closest because, you know, they hold hands, they sleep together, like they're very clearly a couple. And it, I don't know. I, I was rooting for them. I, I liked them as a couple, I thought. And I thought that the fact that you thought they were men and then that they were het and then, you know, it, it, kind of, it goes back from men to het to, to queer again, which I thought was I thought that was an interesting and kind of funny storyline. Yeah. So we get we have Tonker and Lofty. I want to talk about Maledict, Maledicta later, but let's talk about Polly, a.k.a. Oliver, a.k.a. Perks. As he slash she is called In this novel What do you think about our main character Who really is our POV character For like 90% Of the book Kind of
1: Bland As far as Discworld Protagonists go I feel like I'm giving an awful lot of hate To this book like (laughs) I didn't hate it It's not like Eric Mm -hmm. You know But with other Discworld protagonists, you have like, they have interesting things about their personality outside of that. And that, maybe that's kind of the point at the start where it's just Polly is going to find her brother and that's how simple it is. And then at the end, it's like, oh, well, it's not actually that simple. And, it, you know, where they say, oh, that's what it's about, been about the whole time. No, it's it was just the start. But, Again, only really at the end of the novel do we get a lot of, like, actual beliefs from Polly about how things are or should be. And so, like, I, I was kind of, like, unimpressed, really, when it was, like, her POV. I was just, it it, it didn't feel as vibrant as, as reading other Discworld POV characters.
0: She does kind of seem like an audience stand-in.
1: yeah. Because
0: there's so much about her character that is dedicated to this idea of processing all of these complicated ideas. I did really like how clever she was, mainly because like, like she, to me, seemed very... She's not witch-like. She's not quite to the point where she has that... She doesn't have that independent like force of will that like Tiffany, for an example has, but she's very observant. She does see things that I don't think anyone else sees. She's always watching the other people. And I, that might be because she's an innkeeper's daughter. And you know, when you're in like the service industry, you kind of, all you do is, you know, (laughs) interact with people. And so like you, you learn to kind of like read them very easily. I also really liked her thing about birds. And I know that part of that is like her brother and the fact that he he's developmentally disabled and he one of his hyperfixations is birds. And so she kind of picks up on it too. But I kind of liked that because we don't actually see her brother until like the very end of the book. But to me, it was like the most present part of their relationship. Like she had taken on the identity of being his sister and that connection so much that she had made his hyperfixation one of her hyperfixations.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Like you with the connection to birds, then you have that connection to the land and like specifically mm-hmm. to Bargravia, which you know is in service then of her essentially being the driving force for something needs to change. Like that sort of spiritual successor the honey None of the Torch that Jackram does at the end, where it's like, well, it's going to be you who's going to put an end to this war. So, like, that's an interesting tie. But also, as well, it's just on the topic of hyperfixations. Blouse, as well, is so autistic coded.
0: I love him. He is great. He may be the only. Is he the only man character really.?
1: I mean, we're. We're never, like, explicitly told. At the end, like, in the court, they say, Lieutenant Brock says about Blouse, he says that he's a man, and because he's an officer and a gentleman, we'll take him at his word. Yeah, And that's all there ever is.
0: I just assumed that he was a man because he had such a... Because of the, the schooling jokes, like the the British... Boarding school jokes, which I understand, I don't get as much as somebody who's like familiar with like that particular school culture. But to me, that seemed very masculine.
1: But at the same time, you have that like he can't shave, and the whole thing of like oh, he always had someone to do it for him felt very much like like a bait and switch, where it's like no, he he never learned how to shave because he's actually a woman.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that could be true. I really enjoyed all of the jokes about when he cross-dresses, if we assume he's a man, when he cross-dresses to sneak into the the fortress and how he makes a more convincing woman than the rest of the regiment does. That felt very Shakespearean to me. Um, in fact, there's a, it gets very gender-bendy Shakespearean. I think Polly, even at one point, says, like, if I put on a dress now... Or if I put on men's clothes now, I would be a woman dressing as a man, pretending to be a man, pretending to be a woman, pretending to be a man. And she's like, that's just too much for me. And that really reminded me of As You Like It, where you have that character who is a woman pretending to be a man and then at one point starts pretending to be a man pretending to be a woman. And it just, you know, there's these layers of gender performance that are going on. And so Blouse is really the one who brings that in.
1: Yeah, and the fact that the the washerwomen are like, we know he's a man, but he's so good at ironing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talk about Blouse. Uh, talk about uh, some of his autistic coding in this book, because he's great. I didn't think I was going to like him so much as a character.
1: He's set up to be sort of the same, like the rest of the, the military body, just another like extension of that body. Uh, and we have that with... Um, you know, where three parts is like, oh, you know, he's laughing about, oh yeah, that's what the Ruperts all say when when he wants some scubbo. But like he genuinely seems to enjoy it and he gives a shit about, he gives a shit about the members of the ins and outs in a way that's similar to the care that Jackram has. Mm-hmm. So there's like, and there's an interesting parallel between them because Blouse is like, Largely ineffective personally, but like effective militarily through the chain of command. Whereas Jackrum is effective physically and through force of intimidation, but has to bow to military structures, like in some capacity, especially at the end. So, like, there's a good there's a good level of banter between them, and especially then like when they realize like how much they can take advantage of how ineffective he actually is leadership you know where polly is like well see because it's your job to think about about big picture things yeah and i was sort of just anticipating your orders like you said this and i understood all of this that was like implied in it and he's like right right yeah okay
0: uh but he so smart. Like he's talking to William at one point and he About has the clax. I- about the clax. Yeah. yeah, he has an idea to make the technology better, which is incredible for someone who only saw one one tower very briefly in a country where the clax is like forbidden.
1: Yeah, that that moment I was like, oh no, he he's so autistic. I love it. The fact that William is like, hold on, whoa, 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 go back like several steps there. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I, I I do love him because he is very, he is very intellectually smart and he's not, he's not completely inept personally because there are moments where he kind of like he get there's this glimmer that he understands what's going on. Like he calls Jackram out on, uh, that regulation that Jackram cites at the beginning. So he stay he can stay with yeah. them. You know, he doesn't like directly call him out, but he implies like, yeah, I know what you're doing. But then there are these moments where, like, when Polly does tell him, finally, like, hey, you know, like, I'm a woman. All of these, all of the people in the regiment are women, except for Maledict, we don't know. And Blouse is like, are you sure? <laughs> Which is like, it's it's like, it's like, there's this really weird duality to him where he's he's very intelligent, very intellectual. He can kind of grasp what's going on when it kind of is in that realm of it. But when it comes to things like you know, is Polly a woman, it it becomes a lot more difficult for him.
1: But all, I don't know, I'm trying to think now of any other place where where Blouse is, like, given then coding one gender or another. Because, like, when they talk about other members of the military high command, I can't remember the name of the one, you remember? They bring it up in the trial at the end, and, like, one of them whispers to Frock. And it's this person they've mentioned before used to always dress up in women's clothes, and they talk about the theatrics like that feels really similar to blouse, and blouse's penchant for what they call theatrics and acting. So again, it feels like we're leaning towards the fact that maybe blouse is a woman in disguise, but it's never it's never explicitly done. I did as well like the moment where he gets the enemies. Codebook, and yeah. they're like, "Yeah, we're." He's like, "We're going to signal them," and they're like, "What? What the fuck are you doing? That makes no sense." And he's like, "No, no, no, no trust me."
0: Yeah, and he like like makes it look like they're coming from a different direction or from farther away than they actually yeah, are. Like
1: genuinely a genius move, and that's all him.
0: Absolutely, but he cares about them too. Like he does have some really self-destructive ideas about like glory and honor and so on that have been drilled into him by the military but he does seem to like genuinely care about what happens to them
1: it definitely that sort of mold of because this this feels very like first world war
0: yes coded
1: like definitely that that sort of the thing that wilfred owen and siegfried Sassoon. We're writing about, and especially the, the Wilfred Owen poem, uh, you know, dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. Like, it's sweet and honorable to die for the fatherland.
0: In fact, several reviews I read compared this to Wilfred Owen because... And this seems like actually a good time to bring it up before we go through some of the other characters. This book is... It seems like Pratchett's second go at a couple of topics. Um, One of those topics is gender um, and transness, which we should talk about later on. But the other topic seems to be the topic of war. We've already had a book about a war on the disc world, Jingo. Um, Specifically. I enjoyed
1: Jingo more.
0: (laughs) I know you enjoyed Jingo more, but I do think it's interesting that this seems to be like, he has more to say about war. Jingo to me feels a lot more satirical about like colonialist attitudes. And like you said about like maybe specific wars um, that the British have been a part of this one to me seemed a lot harder. It had a harder edge than Jingo when it came to war, it was more about the, the horror of war than I think Jingo was. Not that Jingo didn't have that, but I think this one is less satirical and more just like, war sucks. <laughs> and, you know, what are the things that people say in order to get people to sign up for something that is so awful?
1: And that gets into then wash, like, what exactly is the role of a soldier and what is and isn't permissible in war and peacetime both of them and that's like really explored with with jackrum especially but the whole conceit of the trial then is at the end is getting them to be officially recognized as soldiers because of their gender but then like they're choosing to ignore the fact that they did sign up for one reason or another for different reasons to how the men originally signed up you know, back when the war first started and what lies were told to them.
0: There are a lot of lies that are told in this book about the war. There are lies about whether they're winning or not, um, which becomes really important later when Polly keeps asking Blouse if they're actually winning or not. There are lies about how well provisioned the military is because there's a lot You know, in the propaganda of, you know, you can eat as much as you want and, you know, that kind of thing. And it becomes very obvious that this is an army that is low on supplies. There's a lot about, you know, the glory and honor of war and not, you know, the fear of it or the horror of it or the, as Jackram says, the meat or the uh, metal part of the war. So there's, there's a lot of stuff, um, a lot of lies, a lot of propaganda in this book that all of these characters have to kind of grapple with. What did you think? Talk, talk a little bit more about that. What are some things you thought about the propaganda and the way that war is portrayed in this book?
1: There's never any moment in the book where we're explicitly given the impression that it's a positive thing, which is. I mean, I think like I think it's interesting for a book that's about. Because, like, there are narratives where you'd have this descent from an idealized, noble vision of, like, serving your country and beating the, the enemy back, and then learning that it, like, things aren't what it seems, and it's not a glorious war, and, you know, returning home, scarred and changed, you know, kind of like, like, like all quiet on the Western Front, nearly. But at no point are we ever given a POV like acceptance that the war is good. We have like we have Polly who's skeptical and like like the fact that she's constantly asking, "Oh, are we winning? Are you sure we're winning?" You know, like there's never any moment where she believes that they are. And then the only other characters we really switch to then are are like Vimes on the other side. Who like knows Bar um Bar is not winning.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, they're
1: gonna starve to death.
0: I think it's interesting too that Polly the reason she knows that war is not as glamorous as the propaganda has said that it is, is because she's been paying attention to not only how many men didn't come home, but the ones who did. And yeah. What? How they've been ruined? You know, physically, mentally, emotionally. You know, she's she's talked to a lot of soldiers, and so she knows. Like this is not an experience that they. It's an experience that they've bonded over. It's an experience that has, you know, changed them in significant ways, but it, not for the better.
1: Like was it uh, Gummy Adams or something that she she's spoken to?
0: the one she te- that teaches her how to how to fight yeah i thought that that was really interesting and i also thought because there's a version of this book and the version might actually be the disney mulan <laughs> where yeah. this where this story would be very girl power like oh women can fight just as well as men and they're you know polly is going off to prove that that no polly does not is not going off to prove that she is just as good as as a man there's nobody in this regiment who is there because they buy the idea that being a soldier is so great because they're all there because something in their lives that they're leaving behind is worse than the life in the army which should tell you something about their lives so like Polly is looking for her brother because she knows that if her father dies, she'll get kicked out of her house, right, by her cousin because she can't inherit the inn. I mean, and she cares about her brother, too, but that is, like, the prescient thing. Shufti slash Betty is looking for the father of her child. Tonker and Lofty are escaping, and Wazzer, are escaping. I can't remember what it's called, but it's the home for...
1: Girls, yeah, the girls, yeah, it's school like it's the girls' something.
0: home. They're escaping from this place, which uh, we are definitely going to talk about because, like, holy shit, some of the stuff that they talk about in that place. They're trying to escape that place. Maledict Maledicta is clearly trying to find a place in order to help them control their bloodlust. Um, they're trying to find like kind of a support system, I think. Igorina. Wants to be able to practice the skills that she has and she's not allowed to in the society that she's a part of. And so that's why she joins up because she sees it as a place for her to exercise that. And so like and I want to talk about Wazer specifically, too, but like all of these people, they're not they're not joining up because of the propaganda. Like they're joining up because this idea seems better than whatever it was that they had going on before.
1: And because as well, like, I think the difference between Monstrous Regiment and Mulan comes down to the reveal, like, <laughs> the gender reveal, you know, like, where, where it <laughs> revealed that Ping is actually Mulan, and then you have the reveal to people who aren't w- within the regiment, because Jackrum knew the whole time, Maledict knew most of them were women the entire time people outside of the regiment like in mulan it's like whoa you're a war hero and you can be with the prince and there's you know like it's just like wow look at what a woman can do girl power whereas in this one it's like no you're going on trial and we're going to patronize you and you have to fight for because like like what they say is like you're going to be sent to to like a man you know you're going to agree to step down, and we're going to send you to a man and you and you won't cause any more trouble for us.
0: They offer to give them dowries, yeah, like so that, to marry them off or whatever. like they're like we're we're very grateful for what you did, but we don't want you to be here. but you existing in this space is disrupting the entire reality that we have based around this particular institution,
1: yeah. And A lot of that comes down to something you mentioned earlier then of like, well, if all of the, or like if, if a sizable portion, a third, I think is what Jackrum says, a third mm-hmm. of the high command is actually women. You know, why are they being so strict in trying to punish the ins and outs?
0: And I think I have a thought about that because at the very end, when Jackram calls out, especially General Frock, on this issue, let me actually find it really quick because I want to make sure. Okay, yeah. So there's this moment where Jackram is talking about—he's talking to Frock, and he reveals that Frock's name is Mildred. And, you know, she says, that will be General Sergeant. I'm still a General Sergeant or sir will do. And your answer is one or two, one or two. And the she's answering the question: How many other women in this army did you did you did you know were here? So one or two. And and Jackram says, and you promoted them, did you? As if they were as good as men. Indeed, not, Sergeant. What do you take me for? I promoted them as if they if they were better than the men. And this goes into a really old problem. When it comes to a lot of women who do break boundaries, who do find themselves in these positions where they pull up the ladder behind them. And so there's this idea that, like, well, if I had to struggle so much to get here, then you should have to struggle that much to get here. Like, you only deserve to be here if you're better, than the men or you only deserve to be here if and this this comes up in other minority groups too right like like black doctors have to be better than white doctors or you know like there's there's a lot of these different aspects tied up here but there is also ways in which we see this just in in society in general for an example white women are often accused of and and they do this of pulling up the ladder behind them when it comes to women of color so this idea that, yeah. like, we want, we want rights, but we're not going to give you—we w- we will stand on top of you in order to get what scraps we can. And so that, to me, is I think what's happening in this scene is that these women are so used to hiding who they are, having to play the game a certain way, that they can't even imagine changing it so that way these women don't have to do the same things that they did. I
1: mean, I will say as well, on that point, you have the opposite as well, where they're like, that Gulf goes the opposite way, then, where you're looking at minority groups, and you expect them to have to be as good, at least or better to be taken seriously, Mm -hmm. but you're not take, but they're not taken seriously because of that divide, you know, like, the way that people of color, and especially black women, the belief that they experienced less pain for things and so received much like like much poorer medical treatment than white people you know in the within the same hospitals like there is that then from that but like there's a quote two pages later i think in my edition where it's just after the duchess speaks to to frock and then where Frock says that they're going to be bringing the flag of truce to the other side. Yes, of course. Or before we go any further, ladies and gentlemen, I, uh, some of the things said here, the whole issue of women joining as women, obviously she raised her hand to her cheek again in a kind of wonderment. They are welcome. I salute them. But for those of us that went before, perhaps it is not, not yet the time you understand and it reminded me of this Tumblr post, which I went and found then by Ravens-Play-Xe-2. I saw the words, "You're not the first person in your lineage to be queer," and it's rocking me to my core. How many generations down the line did one of my ancestors feel the feel the way I did, feel differently than I did, and so damn queerly it was a crime? How many of us were there? Did they have hope? Did they find peace? I don't know. At the very least. Maybe I am proof their identity was never wasted, reincarnated. Like when you grow up in an era without the tools to process or deal with or overcome trauma or discrimination against a particular ethnic group or sexual or gender identity, that kind of becomes ingrained in you. And you see this like in things like the, the differences between different waves of feminism or the ways that certain sexualities or gender identities are, you know, like transmisogynists, mm-hmm. you know, where they're, they want the equality for their specific sexual or gender identity, but then they're not willing to extend that to other people in the LGBTQIA plus spectrum because they're, they've spent their whole life trying to fight for that and they can't deal with it. But I think it's so sad where, like, even then, Rock's not willing to, to like, step up, is not willing to own the fact that there's women in high command.
0: There is really a lot of gatekeeping happening here, um, even by other women, which I, I do think is very interesting. Let's talk about just a couple of other people in this squad, and then we can start kind of talking a little bit more about the gender roles here. This is the first I- Igorina that we have ever met. We've seen a lot of Igors, but that, now we have we an Igorina that we know of. That is true. What did you think of the role of Igorina in this book? In some ways, her role is identical to the Igors that we've met before, but in some ways it isn't.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, by and large, it's kind of the same. And I think that's, like, reaffirming to the character that the narrative holds her as equal to previous Igors. We've seen it in the series, and this is something... This is a benefit that's extended only to the readers because, like, things like the lisp as well that's put on, and that's what Polly catches on to, the fact that it's, a, like, a lisp that doesn't happen in certain periods so like the narrative treats her as equal but then the people within the people within the the text don't we have that like uh i thought it was really funny that you know when they're asking for scissors and they're like i won't ask you to repeat it igor and then it's like i will fetch you one of those instruments
0: yeah, there's some really good there's some really good Igor stuff in here. I really liked though that we got to build out the Igor society a little bit more because even in a place like uh, Borogravia, where Igor's are technically abominations unto Nuggin, they has kind of serve this like really important role of. Of, you know, helping helping people medically, right? And so there, people kind of turn a blind eye to them. But it was interesting the ways in which they, when they help someone, they're going to come back, right, at some other point when they're dying and ask them, you know, for, for body parts. And I think it's interesting. They'll only ask them once. But if you say no, you'll never see an Igor in that area again. That was interesting to me, like building out this particular aspect of Igor's society.
1: And the fact that it's also sort of a demented version of just organ, organ donorship.
0: Yeah, but it's seems it, it's like it's like going to a very religious, conservative, technologically non-advanced. Right. Because this boar gravy is clearly less advanced than, say, more pork. Um, and that's because of their conservatism. It's interesting to find a race of creatures that are committed to the idea that medical help is a right and not not something you have to earn, right? Because I, uh, Igarina even helps enemy soldiers, right? Um, to her, it, yeah. it doesn't matter. She's there to provide medical assistance.
1: Yeah, it's nearly, they the nearly then function like Doctors Without Borders, it, like in that regard.
0: Let's talk about Wazer, which means we're going to have to also talk about the school for, for girls. Wazer, to me, is a Joan of Arc stand-in. Does that, I mean, the fact that she hears messages from the you know her deity the duchess which is sort of this like stand between right and which is the same way that joan of arc said that she heard you know voices telling her to go to war telling her to dress in men's clothes telling her you know they're gonna win like there there is a lot about Wazir to me that seems very joan of arc like even though they don't the ending is different right she's not burned at the stake as being a witch but to me, Joan of Arc, in a lot of ways, and a lot of, I know that Joan of Arc is claimed by a lot of people as being, you know, not trans because we can't know that about her, but the fact that she definitely has a lot of queerness going on.
1: There's a lot coming with me into this, and especially that kind of school from the history of like the Catholic Church in Ireland, especially with things like the Magdalen Laundries and.
0: And that's come up a couple of times when we've talked about this, but this is the closest I think we've gotten to it.
1: But then like you have those places all across the world, which, you know, like those kind of reform schools, especially in America for, for young boys deemed, you know, to be problems, like back in the eighties and stuff where they would just beat the kids. You, You know where they have that moment where they're talking about what were they before? And Polly was like, Oh, I was an innkeeper's daughter. And, uh, i i think it's to wazer she says but you know what were you what what did you used to be and she just says beaten that mm-hmm. that's that's all they know it's terrifying and so you kind of have that like the same thing i think that people try to do that weird pseudoscience back onto joan of arc where up until the end you're like is this just trauma and like and that's what a lot of them say it, like that place just makes you funny in the head Either you learn to live with it, or you go quiet, or you go crazy like Wazer.
0: And Lofty, to a certain extent, because Lofty is obsessed with fire. Yeah.
1: Yeah. She can find matches anywhere.
0: Yeah, and there... I mean, the more you learn about this school... I mean, as soon as I read about the school, I was like, this is not good. Because the idea of, of girls and women being shipped off to a home, if they... If they break the rules, the gender rules in any sort of way, that's that has, like you said, a lot of history in many cultures, but especially in uh, Western cultures as well. The school could be a workhouse, it could be a prison, it could be an institution, right? Of some mm. kind, but this there are a lot of places that women were sent. You know, especially queer women, especially uh, disabled women, women of color, right? Um, and some sometimes you didn't even have to break the rules. It just turns out that you know your father or another male relative just wants to get rid of you, and so they accuse you of something. And so, like you know, there's a lot of reasons why different people were here. What? broke my heart and what was horrifying is the ways in which it's obvious that this school is bad but as you hear more about it from Wazer, from tonker from lofty it you like it's every little detail is just like more horrific than the last one because you know tonker talks about you know how they were beaten and Wazer talk and she says we don't we think Wazer is this person but we don't know because we don't actually know like what happened to her but then you know she talks about how Lofty was basically raped by a man yeah. that she was sent to work for and her child was taken away from her and she talks about the priest in that village that both Polly and, and they are from and she doesn't specifically say what happened, but it is implied that he is sexually abusing the girls there as well. I mean, and this is mm. this is some dark stuff. This is I mean, this is more explicitly dark than even Night Watch was in terms of the way Watch didn't really fill in the details of the torture that was happening at,
1: at Swing's unmentionables. house. Yeah.
0: yeah. But this we have specific details of what happened to Tonker and Lofty and Wazer. And there is a way mm. in which Polly realizes like I and I just let this happen. Like this was happening in my town and I just didn't care to to do anything about it.
1: Yeah. Polly has to come to terms with the fact that her parents actually like her, you mm-hmm. know? and they're uh, and because of that she hasn't had to experience this but because of that she's also done nothing to help which is part of the problem and you know like then later on at the end when they're talking about the fact that the house burns down you know they're they're like well no one really commented on that either they're just like nearly trying to to block the whole thing out from cultural memory but because it's like we did, we did Maurice, then we did Nightwatch, and then we did The Wee Free Men, and in each of those, we're getting more and more like darker stuff about how people are treated. You know, like we have that the comparison with like I, I forget which rat it was, and Maurice wanting to, to essentially commit genocide in, mm-hmm. in the rat fighting ring. And we have then the the Unmentionables house in Nightwatch. And we have what happens to the old woman in The We Free Men. And now we have this in Monstrous Regiment. And it definitely feels like Pratchett is coming towards we can't really stand and not acknowledge that these things are happening. And it's telling as well that the, these are all like essentially back to back to back and coming from, like, 2000. And I have to wonder, like, is it is this just the cultural zeitgeist where everything's slowly getting worse and worse? Is that, like, he feels the need to, to, like, reflect this more, this sort of, like, growing animosity? Because then as well, this is post-2001, and I don't want to be like, well, 9-11 is the reason for Discworld being this way, but that kind of, like global cultural cultural shift where it was like it's okay to it's okay to hate muslims and things like that because of 9-11 for whatever reason and then you had the start of this global war on terror and just the rise in, again in hatred to minority groups and it's something then that you know was paralleled with with covid and the hatred for asians and, and pacific island nations so i have to wonder is this like Pratchett being like, well, I can't actually, if I'm trying to hold a mirror up to our world, I can't really be as vague about bad things happening. Because we've had like vague mentions of child abuse and things like that in earlier Discworld books, like in Hogfather and stuff. But this is it it's becoming more and more explicit and like in this book as well, we have a parallel to The We Free Men where they talk about how Polly stops praying to Nuggin after her mother burns the bird
0: Mm -hmm. She can't pray to a god that burns painted birds
1: Yeah, like any god that allows that to happen isn't worth praying to in the same way that like any god that you know can't recognize that a shepherd has work to do isn't a god worth praying to we keep coming back to this idea of like, well, if a God lets these injustices happen, either big or small, are they really worth praying to? This sort of global hopelessness, this scarcity of of uh, faith
0: and it's interesting to talk about faith in this book because it, it it is complicated. but just to to go back to your earlier point about nine eleven, I I do want to point out that Jingo is written before 9-11 and this is written after. So I do wonder if, because, you know, Jingo is about, we've, we talked about in the Jingo episode about some wars that this could be, that Jingo could be kind of based on or could be parodying. I feel like the war that ensues after 9-11, the forever wars, the fact that that was happening at the same time that he was writing this, that he had like an actual, like, a war that was ongoing that you know seemed like it was for no particular reason beyond just like retaliation for something like you know there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq for an example and it was really based on a lot of xenophobia as well i do wonder if that inspired Borogravia and it's, you know, conservatism wars. We have had references to Nuggan in the past. N- Nuggan is brought up in Small Gods. Um, there's often jokes about him and like his abominations, right? Because it is it is funny. Chocolate's an abomination. You know, certain, j- you know, uh, jigsaw puzzles are an abomination. But it's almost like he's like, well, actually, it's not that funny. Like, let's talk about how it's not. And so it, it is interesting to me that he is getting more explicit in talking about violence but i think that's because like you said i think violence was just becoming more and more part of kind of what we were discussing on a national level and i also think that i don't think i've mentioned this before but it's come up recently on blue sky for an example
1: i've just figured out what that is recently
0: (laughs) (laughs) you know neil gaiman wrote a foreword to Pratchett's collection of um, nonfiction and he described Pratchett as being angry he said you know Pratchett had a lot of anger and what he meant by that wasn't necessarily that Pratchett was an angry person you know had a problem with his temper or whatever but it was that Pratchett very deeply felt the injustices of the world the unfairness of the world around him and that Created a lot of anger in him, um, which is kind of what Gaiman implies is the driving force for him writing the Discworld, like to be able to talk about these injustices and unfairnesses. And I think what we're Mm -hmm. seeing here in this in these books in, you know, Nightwatch and the We Free Men and Maurice and Monstrous Regiment is that he's starting to get more not just more detailed, but more. He's, he's acknowledging the subtleties of the injustices and the contradictions that exist in these types of societies and the different motivations and the different ways in which societies will can be led into committing these types of atrocities. And it's not that these, di- these themes didn't show up before. I mean, we've already mentioned equal rights. He, you know, he tried to talk about sexism and transphobia and equal rights, but that book is like, Compared to Monstrous Regiment, Equal Rights is like a hammer compared to a scalpel. Yeah. It, it's not—it's It, it it's very clumsy. It doesn't actually understand the intricacies of how a society controls women. It just talks about um, how women are often ignored. And it's not that Equal Rights doesn't have some valid points. It's just this book— you know, for, like you said, all that it might be boring or whatever. This book has a much, much firmer grasp of how sexism actually works and how it affects different kinds of people.
1: I think as well, like Pratchett's anger, it, it really reminds me of that, you know, the Capaldi-Doctor Who quote I've probably brought up, where it's like, you know what you do with all that pain, you grip it tight until it burns the palm of your hand, and, and you say, not on my watch. You know, no mm-hmm. one else is going to feel this hurt there's a difference between having anger and being angry and you kind of see that in you kind of see that in this book through polly like you see it in other books through like like vimes and how he perceives injustice but you have you have that um line that polly says later on you know the way to care about small things is to start caring about big things but maybe the world isn't big enough to to care but it's like well you, you you know you have to damn well try essentially
0: and i think also the stakes he realizes i think that the stakes are higher because like the worst thing that's going to happen to ask in equal rights is she stays she home and she's because, never yeah. a wizard For Polly and for the other women here, the worst thing that could happen is that they die or that they get put in this home for girls, right? Which is always used as the stick, right? If you're not a good girl, if you're not the right kind of woman, we're going to put you in this home. And, you know, Polly brings this up several times, but one of the things that really stuck out to me was the scene where she and Strappy fight (laughs) at the beginning. And she talks about how the soldiers taught... Or the old men, you know, taught her how to fight. But she said she says she was a quick learner, but she'd made a point of staying clumsy long after she'd got the feel for the blade because using a sword was also the work of a man and a woman doing it was an abomination unto Nuggin. Old soldiers on the whole were easy on the easygoing side when it came to abominations. She'd be funny just as long as she was useless and safe just as long as she was funny. So this idea of you have to play into these gender stereotypes, right? Like, oh, look at me. I'm funny. That means I'm safe, right? I'm useless. So I'm safe. You don't have to worry about me. I'm not a threat to you. Like the fact that women have to put on that persona all the time, the fact that women often fake laughter at what men say in order to avoid violence. Like there's so much like inherent threatened violence in this book towards the women i mean there's the explicit violence of the home but this idea that if they get caught it's it's not going to be good for them right like that there are actual violent stakes here and one of the things i think about i'm trying to remember who said this i think it was unfortunately i think i'm about to quote margaret atwood who is not someone that i particularly enjoy quoting but she did have a really good point uh she's transphobic
1: Oh, I did I don't really know much about Margaret Atwood.
0: She did say at oh, one lovely. point and this is a this is a really good encapsulation of this particular idea. The worst fear that men have, and I'm probably quoting this wrong, but the worst fe- fear that men have is that women will laugh at them, and the worst fear that women have is that men will kill them. That is that is the center of this book. Like that is the fear that they all have. Um, That's why at the end, when Jackram basically bullies the army into allowing them to be soldiers, they have to be dressed up as token soldiers, right? They have to wear skirts and they have to wear the fun hats and they have to, you know, it's not, they're not treated like they're real soldiers. They're kind of couched within these very gender normative ideas under the name of being progressive. And they have to agree to that because the alternative is horrible, right? They have nowhere to go.
1: It's the same thing you see happen throughout history it, with people of color, you know, where it's like if if they could do something, they'd be invited to do it, you know, so people could like come and see and, and like, wow, look what they've managed to do despite their, I don't know, and they would use, you know, like they would use words like affliction or condition. It'd be like just being born a person of color.
0: You know, they use it to pat themselves on the back. Like, oh, look at us. We're so progressive. We allowed, you know, one black person into this college. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's a way of making yourself feel progressive when you're not actually treating them like real human beings.
1: That element of spectacle then where it's some, mm-hmm. like, even though you've afforded them this place and you can pat yourself on the back, there's like, it's still something you can point an ogle at.
0: Yes, there is a real performance, which goes into the idea of gender performance, because everything about gender in this book is a performance. You have to wear the right clothes. You have to walk a certain way, right? Um, Polly is constantly thinking about the way she walks and the way she spits and the way you know, like she she. Everybody's sticking sticking the socks down their trousers. Which, by the way, any time that came up, I actually thought it was really funny because Pratchett is not really an explicit writer, right? He doesn't swear a lot. He doesn't. He doesn't have like you know, very sexually graphic things in his books, but the way he uses socks as a way to um, basically replace another word that sounds similar, I thought was very funny, but it is all performance. And the funny thing is one of the jokes is that blouse performs it better than they do in the end.
1: If gender is a performance then baby, it's a tragedy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk briefly about Borogravia, the Duchess and Nuggan. So as I've said before, Nuggin has been mentioned as sort of a punchline of a god before. Bore is an interesting country because they are very conservative. There is a lot in this book that is par- that parallels very closely with conservative Christianity, especially. But also Catholicism, because the Duchess sort of acts as this intermediary between the population and Nuggin. Like a lot of people pray to her Instead of Nuggin?
1: Like the Virgin Mary.
0: Like the Virgin Mary. Yeah, that's what I thought of as well. What did you think about this and the idea that Nuggin is dead?
1: I mean, if there's one thing more powerful than a god, it's a dead god, you know? Explain. Throughout throughout history, when you look at cultures, it's like, you know, like when you look at, let's say, like the Greek pantheon, and there was like that kind of belief that The gods were there, they were ever-present. Now, regardless of their morality, there was sort of this belief that they were around them at all times. But then when you get into modern day and you have these things, or even in fiction, but like especially in the real world, when you have gods that have died and some of them have been resurrected, like Jesus Christ, you know, the son of the risen God and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. you know like people are much more willing to go to that cause then for this like especially in the case of christianity people are much willing to much more willing to do things because you have that thing of like oh well jesus christ died for your sins you know you need to do something you need to follow this cause because jesus christ gave his life so that you could live a good life according to these tenets And that's led to absolutely horrible things. It's even before, but like a big example of that is the Crusades. People were willing to wage wars in the Holy Land because that's what the Pope said God wanted. On a less dark note, you have people like Buddha and, you know, the concept that he dies and he comes back again and again. And you have then this karmic cycle. It's much more wholesome. But like the belief in that it's a God that dies and comes back again.
0: But I think it's also interesting how this intersects with something like small gods, right? Because Om, for an example, in small gods is dying. He only has the one believer, yeah. Bretha. And it, I think it's interesting the parallel. I mean, from a, yeah,
1: a and real brother. world perspective. Yeah.
0: So it's interesting that Wazir says, like, you don't actually, nobody here actually believes in Nuggan, they believe in fear. Um, you've made fear your God is what she says. And it it does go back. I think small gods is even mentioned like, uh, like Nuggin is not even a small God. He's faded completely away.
1: He's just voices in a cave.
0: Right. Um, which is an eerie description. (laughs) Like they're basically getting echoes of a religion that has lived long past even its deity.
1: Yeah. That's like one of the things that I, I really liked about the book. Um, not not that part. I'll get back to the... the... the nuggin thing, but, like, the fact that even though this book is... Ki- oh, I found this book kind of boring, they had still, like, a load of just real fucking raw lines in it, you know? Like, you fear tomorrow and you made fear your god. What a raw line from from Terry Pratchett there. Yeah, like, not to get too philosophical, like, you have that idea, then, of, like, you know, Plato's Allegory of the Cave You know, they spend their whole life believing that shadows on the wall of the cave are real life. And then you have Nuggin, who's just like echoes within a cave. And people believe that to be a god and a basis for a system. But it's also, to go back to Christianity, like if you followed everything that the Bible said from the Old and New Testament, like it'd be completely ridiculous. There's shit in there about like you're not supposed to wear clothes that are more than one color, you know? You're not nope, meant to have yes,
0: tattoos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I, it is, it is interesting to me that there are no real believers in Nuggan, you know, in Boragravia anymore, which is why Nuggan is dead. And yet the system keeps perpetuating itself because it allows certain people power, which is very similar to what happened in Small Gods with Omniism, right? Um, before Bratha reformed it. So in a lot of ways, Wazir sort of, performs a similar role because she seems to be the only person who genuinely believes in the Duchess and what the Duchess stands for.
1: What I think is fascinating is the fact that it's like Yeah, like it's actively causing the Duchess pain to be an intermediary, to be to like act as an intercession to people's beliefs. Which is something that we we never really like talk about when people pray to the Virgin Mary. It's like we have, all these, we have all these specific prayers to her, like the Hail Mary. She's not part of the Godhead. She's not divine. She just gave birth to the divine. And it's like, well, in a religion that promotes monotheism and actively forbids, you know, in the most famous making of abominations, thou shalt not worship any other gods but me. What happens then when we pray to Mary or we pray to specific saints? Does it, does it damage them? It reminded me of, have you, do you read much Stephen King?
0: Sam reads more Stephen King than I do, um, but I am familiar.
1: Okay, so he had this story in his most recent collection of stories, If It Bleeds, called Mr. Harrigan's Phone, that they made into a film on Netflix. Oh. With the guy from It, Jaden Martell. But it's, it's like this interesting, so it's about this like old man who gets given like the first iphone and it like revolutionizes his world because he's able to buy stocks ahead of everyone else who who are getting who's getting the info in the newspapers he's able to see the information before all then uh but then he dies and he's buried with the phone but then he's still able to use that phone as a ghost that's by the by but like what's really interesting is the thematics of like how it's sort of this spiritual successor to pet cemetery where you have that like sometimes sometimes dead is better in pet cemetery because like they're going to harm the living like it's better for the living if the dead stay dead but mr harrigan's phone is like it's better for the dead if the dead stay dead because constantly calling on them and asking for their help is like causing them pain and they can't pass on them
0: that's really interesting because yeah that is absolutely what's happening with the duchess and i i I also really liked how Oh, the scene where Wazer tells Polly, like, she's standing right behind you. And Polly turns around and she says, I don't see anything. And Wazer said, well, then why turn around? That was really interesting. There's a lot about faith in here and the difference between faith and religion.
1: Is it in this book, the, like, it's better to believe just in case?
0: Yeah. Like, what's the harm? Yeah. Okay. So we ghosts. have a co- We <laughs> Yeah. We have a couple of other people to talk about as well. The first one I wanted to mention um, was Sergeant Jackram, who is obviously a huge figure and serves as sort of a mentor figure for Polly in this book. And then we find out later that he is actually a she. The scene where Sergeant Jackram tells Polly the story of how she came to be in the army and like why she stayed and all of that, I almost would want to read that book. Like it was like a very beautifully written passage of her talking about following, you know, her man to war and how they were together and, you know, things were good and then he got killed and how she had her son. And yeah, it it was just a, you know, this character became more and more interesting as I read this book, because at first I thought that this was just going to be a very stock Sergeant mentor type character, but the more you learn about this character, the more layers there they there are.
1: Like what really struck me in that moment was when Polly apologizes, and Jackram says, "Don't apologize. It wasn't your fault. Like you're not to blame for killing him. Neither was the guy who killed him. And then I killed him. And that's just what soldiering is."
0: Yeah, it is interesting that that Jackram has this very cynical view of war which we can see in a lot of, like, war films, for instance. There's usually, like, some sort of mentor and they're very cynical and they understand what's going on. But Jackram isn't just cynical. Jackram has a more pragmatic view of war, like this idea that I did this because I was in love and there wasn't anything for me at home and this was a better life, but that doesn't mean that this is a good life either. I I think that that was really interesting. I also... I think it's interesting that Sergeant. I think Sergeant Jackram is trans because I don't actually see any evidence that he identifies with being a woman at all. I mean, he does reveal to Polly that that's, you know, that
1: he, was he is a woman.
0: A5. Right. But even, even like when Polly suggests, like you could still go see your son, you could still be part of his life. Jackram is like, it, like expresses disgust at the idea of be like of having to put back on a dress of having to be a woman again and then polly's the one who says or you could just be his dad to me this seemed a lot more nuanced than say equal rights with the whole witch wizard magical metaphor
1: it's something that we see as well with, with Clogston, the the major who acts as their attorney as well. This is, by the way, my name is Christina, and I don't think I could ever get used to wearing a dress again.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that the interesting thing about this is that there are legitimately women who are dressing as men, cross-dressing, in order to join the army and have more more freedom, more agency, or to escape something but then you actually do have characters that actually seem to identify more as men than they do as women. So it's like this whole, it's not just a spectrum of motivations for doing this. There's also actually a spectrum of gender identities here as well.
1: Yeah, because throughout the novel, throughout the novel, like, Polly is always referred to as she. The narrative doesn't switch like it does... With other like explicitly trans characters Mm -hmm. you know like like in the fifth elephant there's that switch instantly from like between pronouns but in this one it's it's always like polly and she her and then she has that moment of not knowing what to call the other members of the of the squad and sort of settles on their male names But then when we get to the court and Jackrum reveals that a third of them are actually women, they're all they're from that point on referred to with she her pronouns. You know, it talks about frock and it's like she said whatever from that point. But then Jackrum is always he, even after the reveal. Yeah, feels like like a conscious identification of gender. I was confused for a second that I thought the narrative was referring to Jackrum with both male and female pronouns after Polly talked with him where it said he had put her chair back and I thought that it was like you know switching between when someone has like equal preference for pronouns Mm -hmm. where you'll do both they or whatever or someone who's gender fluid you just use all of them but no it was talking about Polly's chair and I had like misunderstood the stress, but I was like, that's really interesting.
0: There's a lot of playing with pronouns here. And also, I I found this little bit at the end. Um, Jackram actually apologizes for the way Polly is being treated and says, like, I really thought they'd be better at it than the men, but it turns out, or I thought they'd be better than the men, but it turns out they're better at it than the men. Turns out the army is there to make a man out of you. And so Jackram even understands that what's happening to Polly is not... It's not what what's right. You know, it is what's happening, but it's not what's right. Um, and so there's this idea, again, referring back to that pulling the ladder back up after you.
1: I understand that that's like a thing that the army is like known for, like slogan wise. But I have to wonder, is that meant, is that like meant to give like an actual nod to I'll make a man out of you from Mulan?
0: Oh, that's funny. I didn't even think about that.
1: Which has the line, you know. Did they send me daughters when I asked for sons? In this case, no. The daughters went because there was no sons left to send.
0: That's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. But you're right. Look, I mean.
1: Look, listeners, occasionally I say something germane that's not 12 <laughs> minutes of unintelligible rambling. <laughs> I just, I really loved that scene where Jackram resigns so he can beat the shit out of the enemy soldier as a civilian and then can't be tried under military law, then re-enlists and is instantly promoted back up to sergeant. <laughs> That's, like, I mean, it's funny and whatever, but it's also like, slightly terrifying when you think about, like, the Im- real-world implications of, like, military and police abuses of power and, like, yeah. how cops can just turn off their body cams, which is essentially the same thing.
0: I think the difference here is that is that cops are not military. They should not be military. Oh, yeah. Cops should not be waging war on the populace. Whereas what Jackram is doing here is ethically wrong. I'm not trying to, like, justify what he's doing here. I think Oh my what he's,
1: god. Tessa th- says Jackram did nothing wrong. Hashtag <laughs> Tessa is over party.
0: <laughs> I think what he's doing is a survival technique. I think the fact that yeah. they're at war and he knows... He has a very pragmatic, if I don't kill them first, they're going to kill me attitude when it comes to war. And so I think that's kind of, to me, that's a little bit more of a blurry line than say a cop doing it. Because again, like if, if I don't do it, he's going to do it to me is sort of the attitude Jackram has in, in a war, (laughs) not in a civilian situation. I mean, war, war is not ethically permissible anyway. So like you know it, it kind of becomes more of a gray area.
1: And the other thing was that just like we get another absolutely raw line where like in the courtroom where where is talking about all the like different ways he's helped out the the people and he's talking to Frock and you know he's 14 miles i carried you sir Jackram roared, sweat pouring down his face. Pull that ar- out of your leg, sir. Slice that devil of a captain who pushed an axe in your face, sir. And I'm glad to see the scars looking well. Killed that poor sentry lad just to steal his water bottle for you, sir. Looked into his dying face, sir, for you. Never asked for nothing in return, sir. Right, sir. And then when Jackram is on about, like, having them tried as soldiers and believing in the ins and outs because they're his lads, and he sticks the sword in the thing, Brock didn't flinch and said, he looked up and said calmly, hero, though you may be sergeant, I fear that you have gone too far. And Jackroom comes back with absolute belter. Have I gone the full 14 miles yet, sir? What
0: a line. Yeah, there's some really good descriptive moments in here. Very, very good. Another member of the squad we have to talk about, (laughs) just because it takes up so much of the book. And I, I think it's funny. And there's a really interesting reference that happens in it. Is of course Maledict, um, who is a black ribboner. We don't know that she is actually Maledicta till the end of the book. Although, again, yeah, literally Maledict, on the
1: ferry at the end.
0: Yeah, although Maledict to me strikes me as also being very trans. I don't actually see a lot of evidence that Maledict is very comfortable in a um, in a feminine role, or that might just be the fact that vampires are. Traditionally, kind of androgynous., um, and so that could be also what's going on there as well. But maledict has has is a black ribboner, has decided to join the army. And what we find out via a conversation with Otto is that black ribboners have to transfer to the transference, which is a Freudian term. They have to transfer their bloodlust into something else into like some kind of obsessive activity. So for Otto, it's photography for maledict it's coffee and of course when strappy um who is kind of a political spy steals maledict's coffee out of spite maledict starts to spiral right and uh otto basically warns them like if you don't get him some coffee soon like he's going to revert back to being a true vampire i thought the side flashes that is what igdorina calls them because Otto points out that when vampires hallucinate, they share their hallucinations with with the people around them, which is already a fascinating concept. The idea of like sh- like a being that shares hallucinations that it's their mind touches other minds around them.
1: Yeah, that's like a whole other fantasy concept there that Pratchett just sort of throws in as like side world building yeah. to vampires. <laughs> a thing that already exists
0: here you go and then ignorina builds on that by saying like they're not flashbacks like what vampires experience is like touching other realities like other versions of the world or other worlds themselves they're called side flashes um and we don't really know where they come from is what she says what maledict is hallucinating is the vietnam war (laughs) like on earth, like the references that Maledict is making are to helicopters policies, a helicopter. He, you know, he refers to the enemy as Charlie's, um, which is what the U S military specifically referred to uh, the Viet Cong as the Charlie's, you know, they he, you know, they start hallucinating. They're in a jungle instead of, you know, in Bora Gravia. This reminded me a lot of color of magic, when is oh, on the plane yeah when he briefly is on the plane as dr Rinzwand. what did you think of the side flashes and the fact that like basically we get a little bit of earth like the real world the round world in here
1: i mean i'm gonna address that in a second but like i didn't even connect that with the thing from color of magic i yeah and that sort of makes me wonder why we haven't seen more of that like explicit flashes to earth when it was something in the first book because like when Rinswind experienced that it was like he really wanted to believe in a world where like magic wasn't you didn't have to like rely on magic essentially you know mm-hmm. so he imagined it like a steel he imagined a steel dragon things like that but the flat like the side flashes are really cool especially with how much like how prominent a role quantum and like other universes encroaching on ours have played in recent discworld books like ever since quantum was introduced and that sort of uncertainty we've had this like growing out of other possibilities but now but like it makes me wonder why are vampires attuned to them like what is it about vampires that makes them experience side flashes as opposed to like any other creature that was my main takeaway i was like why is this vampires you know because like in the we free men we get creatures like the drones who like you know create shared dreams in the same way that like vampires share hallucinations so my main thing was like, why is this vampires that experience this? And why did Pratchett not come up with another character? I think it is fascinating, but I was, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out the mechanics of it. <laughs> <If> <laughs> well, I'm being I think honest. the point is
0: nobody knows. Yeah. But I think it also grounds the book too, that it's like, I'm not just talking about how like fantasy war is bad. Like let's actually ground this in an actual horrible war
1: Oh, yeah, one of the worst wars.
0: And so, like, it, it was interesting that by making that reference, it draws this book even closer to the metaphor that I think Pratchett is going for.
1: It's also like... like, vam- um, Black ribbon vampires are autistic in Discworld. Because if they want to give up drinking blood, they have to, like... Have a hyperfixation essentially. Yeah. Maledict is like very particular about coffee. Otto is really into photography. But then it's also like, well, the other, the only other like black ribbon vampire was the, the countess, right? That we met. Yeah. Before.
0: Hers is and politics. You,
1: is that what it is? Like,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Cause she said she's traded drinking blood for a different kind of power.
1: Right. Okay, but then uh, you have to wonder how does transference work for something like politics, which is sort of really nebulous. Yeah. I no, guess I just forgotten that question. line.
0: Yeah, it's a great question, but yeah, I let's talk about some of the Ankh Morpork characters here because the war is really between. Uh, oh, I want Borg- to talk
1: about Strappy too. Because oh yeah, like let's talk about Strappy. The, yeah. What the, what the fuck is the point of Strappy, really? I didn't see a point.
0: The point is that this is a culture that constantly spies on itself because the paranoia of... Uh, there's a paranoia in conservative culture, right? Have you seen the movie Nimona?
1: Is that the new one on Netflix with Chloe Grace Moretz and Riz Ahmed? No, I have not.
0: So you should. Um, it's really, really good. I think you would really enjoy it. It is also very much about being trans.
1: Interesting.
0: But there is a character, without like giving any spoilers, there's a the character who says that they're worried about... Because one of the things of this city is that it's surrounded by a huge wall to keep monsters out. And this character basically says, I've had a dream ever since I was a child that there was a crack in the wall. And when I tried to warn people about it. They didn't listen to me, but the crack kept getting bigger and bigger Then all the monsters came through. And then she says like this thing, like this person who is being trans basically is the crack in the wall. So it's this paranoia, right? Like if we let one thing go, then society is just going to fall apart. And the so domino
1: I, theory
0: yeah and so like like if we let i mean you, you hear this in anti-queer discourse all the time right like if we let gay people get married what's next people are going to marry their dogs you know like it's it's very much like if we let one thing slide then like everything's going to go to shit i think that's what strappy is strappy is he's an extension of the government spying on its own citizens um to make sure that they culturally stay in line as well as legally stay in line which religion and legality are mixed in Borogravia.
1: yeah i don't know i just sort of like didn't see the point because he's just sort of fucked off for half the novel like he was there being an annoyance fucked off for most of the novel and came back to be slightly of an annoyance although i did like when he got slapped by yeah. um by polly this is how far the rock goes and just slaps him across the face
0: pretty good it was so creepy that he took her hair though like that yeah. was like a really gross detail. Yeah,
1: Although I did, I will say,
0: freak. I will say that it, uh, Igarina and her ability to change, like to change her body, like to put her hair back on or take it off, I thought that was really cool and also seemed very trans to me. Like the idea of like using surgery to change your gender performance, that was that was interesting.
1: Like when they comment on it and they're like, and and she's like. No, that's actually my own hair. Yeah. And they wondering like, like where the scar are. She just hurts a little go. bit.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but she still has the scar under her eye, right? To to indicate that she's still an Igor. So the uh, what's the name of the country that they're fighting? I can never remember. Z- oh. Uh, it starts with I don't Z. remember. Hold on.
1: I was going to I was going to say Zevgeny, but that's not what it is.
0: Oh, uh, that's, that's just a name. Oh, also, can we just say, I, I meant to say this at the beginning and then I kind of forgot, but the Igorina thing reminded me of it. I know that Monstrous Regiment is a reference to that John Knox text, but also I love when it comes up in the book when they say, um, oh, you're you're part of the Monstrous Regiment because a troll, a vampire, an Igor, and then later they find out that all of them are women. Like, the idea that, like, this is a whole, like, a, a monstrous regiment, like, they're monstrous because of who they are, which is very common way of um, talking about, like, minorities by othering them, by making them more, seem more inhuman. I, I just, I don't know. The way that, that was said was really interesting. Like, they're the monstrous regiment.
1: Well, you're also, oh, Slovenia.
0: Slovenia. Yeah. So the war is between Borgravia and Slovenia. But Angmorpork has gotten involved mostly diplomatically, but also militarily because Borgravia burned down the clacks that yeah. went across part of their claimed territory. So that's why Angmorpork is backing Slovenia um, even though the Prince Prince Heinrich is not a very good person. So let's talk a little bit about some of the Ankh-Morpork characters.
1: It feels very much like, like America during the Cold War, where it's like, I'm going to insert myself into all these places, because Vimes keeps sarcastically saying that Ankh-Morpork, you know, loves every other freedom-loving country in the world, you know? Yes,
0: that was very Cold War, and goes with the Vietnam thing as well.
1: And he has that Kennedy moment where he tries to speak for a Gravian and says, I am a... um, uh, whatever it is, some baked thing, which is like that that apocryphal story of Kennedy yeah. saying <laughs> uh, Ich benign Berliner, and then thinking that he's talking about the Berliner donut.
0: The donut, yeah. Yeah, so we get Vimes, and we get... Angua, Redshoe, and Buggy Swires. So we get to see another pixie, um, right? We've seen Buggy before. I mean, he's been in books before the Wee Free Men, but it does feel a little different now, right? Seeing him fly the vulture does it? Does it change your perspective of him now? Having read the Wee Free Men, seeing him fly around on the vulture, the buzzard.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it... Because in my head, he wasn't a pixie, he was a gnome. And I was just, I was just like, oh, so because they talk about getting it from the pixies. That, that's where they got that one. I was like, ah, a connection.
0: Yeah, there is a, there's a mentioned connection of, of him learning how to do this, right? Getting the, the trained buzzard. So yeah, we get a little contingent of the watch. Although I will say Vimes doesn't seem to be there in the, his capacity as commander of the watch. He's there in capacity of being a duke. Which I think he finds to be a slightly problematic place to be, because as he has said many, many times, the watch are not soldiers, right? They're not military. But he's sort of He makes a point
1: of constantly pointing out that he does no he, he no longer has his sergeant stripes as well.
0: Yeah. So he seems very like he seems very hesitant. To act in a military capacity, although we do get again that reference to war being a big crime, um, which is a callback to Jingo as well. Um, but what did you think and about Lord
1: Rust is there too? Lord Rust, Rust is
0: also there, yeah, and he is like as inept as ever. Um, <laughs> what did what did we think about the Watch contingent and Rust the or- Ankh pork?
1: I mean, with Vime specifically, I enjoy the fact that he just sort of stands behind Rust making faces in that scene. And then when Polly talks about it, he's like, no, that's just how my face works when (laughs) Rust opens his mouth. Like, there was a lot of real fun scenes with them because, like, they have to navigate the problem of the Watch aren't soldiers, but they're there in a military capacity. But, like... I don't know. I really enjoyed the scene with Reg where, um, you know, they're talking about like the dead downstairs and they're they're not quite like zombies like Reg is. That was a cool scene because it sort of like introduced levels of, of being undead in the disc world, which I think is cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And especially then when they're like like the scene where they're talking about getting raw meat and then Reg is like, oh, yeah, I said it was for you. And then later on, you see the propaganda of of Vimes the Butcher who eats raw (laughs) meat.
0: Yeah. I like how Polly, when she finally recognizes him, is like, you're Vimes the Butcher. And he doesn't even blink. He's just like, yeah, I've heard that one before. Like, Vimes is so used to, like, the horrible ways that people talk about him that it doesn't faze him at all. So yeah, it is really interesting um, to see him here. It's interesting also to see him interact with Angua outside of Carrot, because Carrot is not yeah. here. I, I assume Carrot is back in ankh holding down the fort, as it were. Um, oh yeah. But it is interesting to see like the relationship between Angua and Vimes. It's just such a good... like Considering how far they've come from Men-at-Arms, which is when Angua was introduced... Like, she's clearly, like, a very trusted, you know, a trusted colleague of his. And the fact that, you know, she clearly cares a lot about him, too. And the way that they even interact with each other is very different from the the way they would have interacted a few books ago.
1: Yeah. I mean, it really... Like, obviously, you have the whole evolution of, like, how cohesive the Watch is as a unit and a family but it, it like it's a testament to Vimes's character growth as well of being someone who accepts minorities you know within mm-hmm. within the watch especially although not not vampires so I, I would have liked to have had a scene where Vimes had to like interact with, with Maledict directly although mm-hmm. he's he's in charge of making sure that coffee is gotten to Maledict Although that feels nearly like like problem management, like we're dealing with this war, we don't want to have to also deal with a raging bloodthirsty vampire.
0: The Part where he's like, "Do you think if we just like threw coffee on their heads that that would be too obvious?" Yeah, <laughs> like... <laughs> and then they do it, which is even funnier. Like, yeah, it just comes
1: and like <laughs> like knocks out essentially knocks out maledict in the middle of a a side flash right
0: and i like that it's clatchy and coffee too um which we've we've talked about before as being like the strong coffee that you have to be a little drunk to drink yeah because it's so sober unless
1: you're a vampire apparently
0: yeah i mean maledict won't let it go right Yeah. So I I thought that that was funny. There is this really great scene and I'm really glad, because I had forgotten about this, and I'm really glad that they had this in here because all I could think about the whole book is that I really wanted an interaction between Polly and Angua, who Angua definitely represents a type of woman who has a very different life than Polly, who has a very different understanding of gender, right? Lives in a more progressive society, even though Ankh-Borpork is still very sexist in some ways, um, you know, but has also Angua is also a metaphor uh, in a lot of ways for transness, um, you know, because of her werewolf um, form in the Discworld. So I'm really glad we got this conversation with them. It's, it's near the end of the book. Polly felt embarrassed walking down the sta- steps with Sergeant Angua. How do you start a conversation? So you're a werewolf then would be sort of idiotic. She was glad that Jade and Maledicta had been left in the waiting room. "'Yes, I am,' said Angua. "'But I didn't say it,' Polly burst out. "'No, but I'm used to situations like this. "'I've learned to recognize the way people don't say things. "'Don't worry.' "'You followed us,' said Polly. "'Yes.' "'So you must have known we weren't men.' "'Oh, yes," said Angua. "'My sense of smell is much better than my eyesight, "'and I've got sharp eyes.' Humans are smelly creatures. For what it's worth, though, I wouldn't have told Mr. Vimes if I hadn't heard you talking to one another. Anyone could have heard you. You don't need to be a werewolf for that. Everyone's got secrets they don't want known. Werewolves are a bit like vampires in that way. We're tolerated if we're careful. That I can understand, Mm. said Polly. So are we, she thought. Yeah, I I thought that that was a really interesting interaction between the two of them. Um, You know... The fact that Angua wouldn't have outed Polly if she hadn't talked about it with the others, I thought was interesting because to me that that to me that demonstrates that like Angua was with Cherry, she wasn't going to out someone based on her sense of smell. Right. Based on their biology, she was waiting for Polly to confirm that she identified um, as a woman before she would have told anyone which i thought was
1: class solidarity
0: but i also thought the way that she says like you know we're tolerated as long as we're careful it's such an interesting line and intersects so well with some of the things polly had been thinking in this book
1: yeah and it's something we see like with other minority groups where it's like you know you you can have you can you can have and be accepting of minorities within culture but then like i don't know When Barack Obama was elected president, all of a sudden there was outcry over that because, you, oh, you can't have a black man be president despite the fact that, like, in American society they had voted to end slavery, they had voted to end segregation. By all accounts, there should be nothing wrong with that. It's the same thing with, like, oh, you can tolerate trans people, but the moment they get into sports, then that's, like, a hot topic issue for some conservatives, As long as they're like quiet and as long as they're uh, as long as they fit within where people want them to be, then they have no issue.
0: They can't be threatening or at least threatening in the way that people perceive threatening. Yeah. No, I think that that's that's really interesting. Yeah. And so like there is kind of like you said, there is kind of that solidarity that's going on here. And it was just a really nice moment because there's not a lot there's solidarity within the regiment. But there's not a lot of solidarity outside of the regiment, right? Everyone else seems, like, very anti-them or not trustworthy or, you know, patronizing. And it was nice to, like, hear someone say, like, no, I understand.
1: Which, I, I mean, like, well,
0: Angla is just did a very like the, empathetic the one... person, <laughs> I feel like. Yeah, like, she I doesn't like... come off that way all the time, but I actually think that she is.
1: The one, the one person outside of, like, the regiment and Angla who shows any kind of solidarity – is the soldier who like goes to bring them into the the keep near the end with with the truce flag, and when he finds out who they are, that it's not just like a male soldier trying to to come in, he like recognizes what they've done, and he you know makes sure that they can see. You know, I'm about glad, uh, like I'm glad it's about time that those bastards were taken down a peg.
0: There is some solidarity within within the army in cert- on certain levels i think which is interesting
1: yeah no i just think it's important like for this book and what it's doing that it does show solidarity among you know the like dominant gender and like political paradigms you know because it's something we've come up it's come up again and again both in history and on the show where it's like Minorities can protest and things all they want, but it's the people who hold the privilege and are in power that, you know, are then sympathetic to that, that help affect change. So I think it's important in showing the the gender politics and also the sort of like war politics, solidarity on the other side as well.
0: We also get to see the uh, the war correspondence branch of The Times. Were you expecting William and Otto to show up in this book?
1: No, but I'm really glad that they did for some reason. I don't know. I I'm trying to remember what I said about William and Otto back in our episode on the truth. But I think generally overall, I was I really enjoyed them. But just seeing them in this book more so than like other I was like, oh, the watcher in this, that's kind of cool. But then the minute they were like they introduced them, I was like I was like, "Oh shit, they're in this book, Otto and William? That's great." <laughs> I had more of a reaction to that.
0: Yeah, we just don't get as much time with them, right, as as with the watch, and so, you know, it's it's fun to see to see them in this book, especially Otto. Like, I just love how like William is in like full reporter mode the whole time, but Otto is like Like, I love that scene where they're in the cart and they're trying to hide it. And then suddenly, like, Otto, like, is hanging from the ceiling of the cart and wakes up and is talking to Polly. Like, it's just, like, a very cute, like, you know, moment with them um, where Otto is genuinely, like, trying to help them. And it's and, and we've talked a little I believe when we did the truth episode, we talked a lot about the relationship between William and Otto and how Otto specifically gets William's like father issues. And like, there's that whole scene with Otto and William's father. Um, and so it's really cool to see that they're not only working together, but clearly still have like a pretty close personal relationship.
1: It's also like, they now have e- email in the disc. Yeah. Well, the email. And I have to wonder is part of that because of like building off of the improvements that blouse, gave to gave to to William earlier on you know with like how it'd be easier to transmit images and things like that which as well goes back to something we discussed in the very first episode or not not the very first episode the uh, on the very first book where it's like we don't really understand how cameras work and how they take pictures but like how do you send that then yeah like if you're trying to fax someone something how do you send an image but yeah, I, I do like that. Um, it feels it feels weird to see what's essentially an email address in a Discworld yeah, book. So. in the
0: Discworld book, yeah. As we get as, as the technology becomes more and more um, interesting, I do like that Vimes. I like that Vimes is concerned about Borogravia because he's not thinking about this in a military conquest mindset. The way that he's like, "Okay, we're gonna like ship you food. We're gonna get you through this winter." I mean, and then he and Polly have an argument about whether it's a gift or a loan or whatever. But, like, it it is interesting to me that Vimes... Vimes is thinking more politically here than I think we've seen him think before. And I wonder if that comes from Nightwatch because of the whole... Remember in Nightwatch how, like, they're part of the city behind the barricade. They had all the carts coming in with the food. And he has, like, the realization about... The, the way that the city runs, and you know, the food the the importance of food and supply lines. Um, it's interesting seeing him apply that here, but apply it towards Borogravia as a country who he knows without help will starve to death,
1: like yeah, I, I feel like he has to then take the experience of the end of a war because the situation with Clatch is kind of like helpfully resolved without much like diplomatic fallout the main yeah. thing that happens is like we get this fracturing of time and that's the main thing that he takes away from it but like at the end of night watch he has the the end of the revolution that he lives through but it's also something that he knows from history before going into it you know what i mean and he has that then like he knows firsthand what's going to happen at the end and i think like can recognize the suffering of people it's something that like comes back to that 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 quote from reaper man you know like someone has to you know like the the flopping birds and things like that for the care of the reaper man like he's vimes the butcher but he has to look after these people because like when he asks polly what are they proud of all polly can come up with is they're proud of their pride
0: they have nothing they have completely exhausted themselves as a country in the pursuit of these wars A couple of things um, before we move into the ending. There are a lot of references to different aspects of, like, different... I I almost hate to call this war pop culture, but that is kind of what it is. All of the songs that they sing in this are actual folk songs.
1: Yeah, especially The World Turned Upside Down. Yeah, The World Turned
0: Upside Down, The Devil Shall Be My Sergeant, Johnny Has Gone for a Soldier, The Girl I Left Behind Me, um, Sweet Polly Oliver... You know, it, it is, the, all of those are, are actual war, actual folk war songs, um, which is really interesting. The Borogravian national anthem doesn't seem to parody anything specifically, but there are echoes of different national anthems in there. So like, Frustrate the Endless Wiles of Our Enemies echoes that second verse of God Save the Queen, uh, Frustrate Their knavish Tricks on The Our Hopes We Fix.
1: Is that in God Save the
0: yeah, king? it's the second verse. Um, oh, I guess it's the I, king now. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard the second verse. I
0: don't think most people know the second verses of their national anthems. I, I think that's actually a Pratchett joke from some one book is that nobody actually knows them.
1: But it's also like like as well, when you get to, to Greece, there's like 158 verses to the, Greece, the Grecian national anthem, and they only ever sing two of them. That was like a QI fact.
0: There's a reference to "Don't ask, don't tell" in the in the book as well. There's also a, a so Strappy writes on the board at one point, "What are we fighting for?" and down the side he writes one, two, three. That's from a Vietnam-era protest song um, that's called I Feel Like I'm Fixin' to Die Rag by Country Joe and the Fish. It was famously performed at Wo- Woodstock, for an example. Um, one of the verses is, and it's one, two, three, what are we fighting for? Don't ask me. I don't give a damn. Next stop is Vietnam. It's five, six, seven. Open up the pearly gates. Well, there ain't no time to wonder why. Whoopee, we're all going to die. So like, there's that like, anti-war reference in there as well. We see Tacticus again and um, his book, The Craft of War, which is clearly yeah. the art of war. Yeah. So there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, military stuff. Shock and awe, which is a doc- military doctrine from our invasion of Iraq.
1: So there's, yeah. a, there's
0: a lot of that stuff in here.
1: See, I didn't pick up on a lot, an awful lot of that. And I really love this dynamic then. That's like your you turn to me. Because you're like, this is specifically a British thing that I'm not getting. Whereas then you're like, here's all this, like, war stuff that I've picked up. Um, That went over so (laughs) much of my head. I know the world turned upside down from Hamilton and looking into that. And it's like, it's an actual Revolutionary War song. But, like, I don't know. I never would have picked up on that. I barely understood that they were flashing over to the vietnam war i got it from charlie's but like Mm -hmm. apart from that i i would i wouldn't have picked up that this is like the actual vietnam war
0: well a lot of these (laughs) seem to be more american references yeah a lot of these seem to be more american references when it comes to the war stuff there is a part where they specifically reference shakespeare when frock says Oh, actually, we because she's uh, Frock is trying to uh, dismiss the whole situation. And so she says like, oh, we were mistaken. These aren't women. These are just men dressed as women. This was much ado about nothing. And so there's that like Shakespearean reference there. There's also a reference to the Jolly Sailor. I don't know if you noticed that um, when Jackram does chewing tobacco and he says that he likes his brand more than he likes the Jolly Sailor brand.
1: I was trying to find that After the fact, because I couldn't remember what brand Jackrum likes, but then I couldn't find the page. And all I could remember was, oh, there's a Jolly Sailor reference.
0: So there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of references in here as well. But a lot of them are more towards that war pop culture. The last question I wanted to ask you before I move into the, the ending part of this is about the ending. So Polly goes home, right? Very classic fantasy. You know, ending.
1: Hero's Journey.
0: The hero's journey, yeah. She she takes in Betty, who decides that she's just gonna live as a single mom and be okay with it. And you know, she finds her brother, they all return home. She decides to re-enlist because there's another war with Slovenia, which seems to be this time Slovenia's fault and not Borogravia's fault. What did you think about the way that this book kind of ends with another war after, you know, we went through all of that to end you know, the war and then I mean, Polly's decision like to join again.
1: I didn't like it. I felt like it kind of defeated the point. And I understand that there's like the, like the Jack Rome sent her the, the list of all the female officers in high command, but then it, like, and I thought maybe that that's what was going to happen, but that's sort of left more as a fail safe. And it's like, we're just going to go back into the fighting. Yeah. And it felt like the narrative wanted you to feel a certain way thematically about the war and about the continuation of forever wars. But then itself leaned back into it. And I understand that this is like a real world pattern of one war ending and another war just Straight away taking its place. But this is a fantasy book where you can have a different version of events. And I didn't see why it had to adhere to that. Like, it just flat out didn't make sense to me. Did it?
0: Very depressing. Did you have a
1: better version of it? Yeah. It's like the most downbeat Discworld ending, I think.
0: I understood, I think, the point of it, which was, like you said, Forever Wars, right? Which is what Pratchett is kind of thinking about, I think, at this point. I think it's also supposed to be about the idea that once you've been, a, a lot of soldiers stay soldiers, right? And I think that's because of the experiences they go through. And it it becomes this like, yeah, war is hell, but I don't know how to do anything else. And I don't have the structure, the you know, because it is really familial. It is really a structure of support um, that you develop. And so I to me, it seemed... It seemed depressing because it seemed like Polly was deciding to not deal. She, she makes a decision here to support that structure instead of, instead of going against it, right? She makes the decision to be a sergeant like Sergeant Jackram. And I'm not trying to say Sergeant Jackram wasn't a bad sergeant, but there doesn't seem to be any consideration of the idea that maybe we don't need war. <laughs> and so it, it does seem very depressing to me.
1: The only sort of positive that comes out of that is when Polly says to the two girls on the boat, you can enlist as men or enlist as women. But like, here are the benefits of enlisting as men. You know, you get better swear words and and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, overall, you're treated better. But like you say, there's no consideration of maybe we approach this diplomatically. Maybe we force the leaders to not take a war. Like, like the, the road towards war.
0: Like, the best thing I think she says is, well, it seems like there's going to be a war anyway, but I want to be there to make sure, like, so I want to make, I want to be there to make sure that it happens in the, like, to see what I can do to make it, like, better for the soldiers, right? Which, it feels like that's supposed to be, like a positive thing, like she's taking a situation that she knows is going to happen anyway and and trying to do something good with it. But again, it just feels depressing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that she's just like kind of falling back into this system that is that, that we've already decided is not a good system. It, it is pretty depressing. I will say though, um, and I thought maybe you would appreciate this, this is one of the first Discworld books, uh, adult Discworld books, I should say, where we have a character like Polly who isn't given a love interest. Yes. There's no romance in this book for Polly. And as much as I like romance, I was actually really happy about that because I felt like any romance in this book for Polly, not, you know, obviously we have like Tonker and Lofty and other people. I thought that if they had tried to put romance in this book, I was a little afraid at first they were going to try to make Blouse a romantic interest for her. I think it would have been forced I think it would have been like William and Sakarissa, which is a couple that we said didn't really seem. It seemed it seemed like they were just being mashed together instead of it being an important part of the story.
1: Although that's my feeling for most romantic couples, even the ones you like, such as Casanunda um, and Naniog. Yeah. <laughs> Although I have to say I've been watching Korra, and like I some of them I don't like. I didn't care about Ang and Katara in avatar but i'm like i'm like i'm near the end and it's like god i really hope bolin and opal get back together i'm really rooting for them
0: yeah you're like i want them to succeed those crazy kids
1: yeah i like i i i I mean it feels weird saying that about kids you know being like oh i ship them but yeah no i'm like i i care about their relationship i want them to be happy i didn't care about cora with either mako or bolin though
0: well, well, we'll see what you feel like at the end of the show. I'm-
1: I've got I've got four episodes left.
0: Well, I, I'm curious to know what you think about Cora's eventual relationship status. But Polly, I thought, this worked. I didn't feel like she needed a love interest. I feel like she... I don't think she wanted a love interest. It, it worked for me.
1: Like, it worked character-wise, but also narrative-wise. There's no space really for it, both because, like, the plot has so much going on, but also because the squad we have Lofty and Tonker who are together and we mm-hmm. have Shufty slash Betty who's looking for the father of her child. So yeah. to have a romance angle for Polly feels too similar to bits of either of those. Yeah, it's like God, a girl's gotta a girl's gotta enlist in the army, fight for fight for equality, look for her brother. And manage a relationship? Hot Jeez, damn, that's, that's too much.
0: That's too much. I, she's too tired for that shit. <laughs> yeah, I, that's I completely don't me.
1: agree.
0: There's one death reference in this, or one death sighting, I should say. Kind of um, boring. Yeah, uh, death Death shows up. Polly is, uh, you know, having hallucinations because of uh, because of Maledict. And she sees death and she says, she says, you're a hallucination, right? And death says, oh, yes, you're all in a height- state of heightened sensibility caused by mental contagion and lack of sleep. If you're a hallucination, how do you know that? I know it because you know it. I am simply better at articulating it. Um, I'm not going to die, am I? I mean, right now, no, but you were told you would walk with death every day. So yeah, there's some, uh, uh, there's an interaction between Polly and Death, but like you said, it's not, it doesn't really tell us anything specific. It doesn't seem, it's not even really from Death's perspective at all. It's just
1: Mm. Polly
0: talking to him.
1: Also, like... Coming off of a book with no death sightings, this feels really underwhelming then.
0: There's also no death of rats, which feels like a missed opportunity because if I know anything about battlefields, it's that there are a lot of rats.
1: Yeah, like the First World War had rats the size of dogs in the trenches.
0: Yeah, I feel like that would have been a more interesting um, sighting than maybe death.
1: No, just I mean, to lead into the next section, I think the footnotes were also really boring in this one.
0: Yeah, for the most part, the first footnote is on my page 14. So pretty standard place for a Discworld footnote. It was said to be the wonder... They're talking about a troll bridge. Um, It was said to be a wonder of the world, except very few people around here ever wondered much about anything and were barely aware of the world. It cost one penny to cross or 100 gold pieces if you had a billy goat. Footnote. Trolls might not be quick thinkers, but they don't forget in a hurry either. I thought that was actually kind of funny, especially because we had like the billy goat references in Troll Bridge specifically. But, I mean, it is still, like, low-hanging fruit, right? To make a joke about a billy goat with a troll bridge, specifically. Did you have a favorite footnote?
1: I'm kind of torn between... Like, they're not very good ones, but I'm kind of torn between two, so I don't know if I should say both.
0: We'll see if one of them's mine.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, so what? These are enemy long, John, said Polly. Yes, but there's such a thing as doing it properly. Look, they put in this red pair, and all the others are going pink. And... I used to love pink when I was about seven, footnote. It is an established fact that, despite everything society can do, girls of seven are magnetically attracted to the color pink. And then the other one was the one about birds. It's hard to be an ornithologist and walk through a wood when all around you the world is shouting, bugger off, this is my bush. Ah, the nest thief. Have sex with me, I can make my chest big and red.
0: This is the one I liked. The ornithologist one, it's so good.
1: Yeah, because everyone talks about how beautiful birdsong is, but it's literally like, that's them talking.
0: Nature is kind of gross. like walking
1: into the, yeah, like walking into the subway or whatever. and just hearing like that. You know when you're in like a place with a lot of people who are all talking and it's just that hum? That's the equivalent of being like, that's my favorite noise. It's so beautiful. What?
0: Yeah, the bird thing was very, very funny to me as well. Yeah, and I like the pink one too. But yeah, not a lot of great footnotes in this particular book. What was something that made you laugh out loud?
1: Something that made me laugh out loud? uh, It's a tie between two things as well. The first one was when Maledict does that, like, Dracula riff when they're in the pub after joining up, and he's like, I suppose she, but again, I also think that Maledict is is transcoded, so I'm going to say he, I hope that's all right, internet. (laughs) When Maledict is like, I don't drink piss.
0: The, the Dracula, I don't drink vine.
1: And the other one then is Blouse's, Blouse's desire to become a famous commander, so they'll either name an item of food or an article of clothing after him. And he goes through all the like different food, but then they're like... <laughs> you know, they're like... After the fact that he's been like really well promoted and they've had that he's had an item of clothing named after him. And it's like, like a type of glove. D- like the fact that his name is, yeah, he's a major now and happy as a flea because they've named a kind of fingerless glove after him. I heard. And the fact that it's, it's a fingerless glove called a blouse. I I just thought that was hilarious.
0: It, it was pretty good. I, I enjoyed that. One of the things that made me laugh, um, this is kind of a weird English nerd (laughs) laughter, I guess, because I'm not sure you would necessarily get it unless you were either very English or very obsessed with Byron. So there's this moment, and I will say overall, this was the one scene that made me very uncomfortable in the book, which is the scene where they steal the dresses from the sex workers in the camp. Yeah. Mainly because I was just like, leave those women alone. They're just trying to do their jobs. But like... There is a moment in that scene where Polly says, like, like one of the sex workers says, ever seen a woman on with no clothes or ever seen a woman with no clothes on before Oliver? The girls giggled. Polly's brow wrinkled as just for a moment. She was caught unawares. Yes, she said, of course. Oh, it looks like we've got ourselves a regular Don Juan girls, said Gracie stepping back. Like, it's supposed to be funny because you're like, haha, they mispronounced Don Juan.
1: That's the right way.
0: that's actually the right way to say it. if you if you are someone who's read Don well Don Juan, Don Juan, as a lot of people incorrectly say it by Lord Byron, because that poem is actually a satire. And so the whole point is, is that, like, an English person would mispronounce that word, that name. um yeah. so the example goes
1: and- it makes sense metrically as well, then. For it to be Don
0: Juan. Yeah, because like there's a for an example, there's a stanza where it's like till after cloying the gazettes with cant, the age discovers he is not the true one. Of such as these, I should care not to vaunt. I'll therefore take our ancient friend Don Juan. Right, he's it's rhyming with true one instead of something else that would be would rhyme with Juan. And so this this felt like a joke that had a lot of layers to it. But also because I'm an mm. English nerd, I was like, oh, look, it's a reference to Byron. Anyway, I thought it was very funny.
1: Here's my English major take. Lord Byron deserved everything he got.
0: <laughs> he was a pretty horrible and everything
1: person. He, everything he continues to get.
0: He was a pretty horrible person, but he knew how to do rhyme and triplets. So, I, you know.
1: Also, we have to be grateful to him for being the father of uh, Ada Lovelace.
0: Yeah, that's true. Who's really invented one of the first algorithms.
1: Yeah, I suppose we must tolerate Lord Byron uh just for his so daughter. we can have eight, <laughs> yeah, just so we can have Ada Lovelace.
0: What's something that made you think in this book?
1: Something that made me think. I mean, we already mentioned the thing about the god who lets paintings of birds be burnt is someone prayed uh, is someone worth praying to, but then there's a lot of the stuff that Wazir said while the duchess is possessing her that made me think i see heroes said the duchess staring at the tableau of officers all of you gave up much but i demand more much more is there any amongst you who for the sake of my memory will not die in battle Wazir's head turned and looked along the row no i see there is not and now i demand that you do Do what the ignorant might feel is the easier thing. You must refrain from dying in battle. Revenge is not redress. Revenge is a wheel and it turns backwards. The dead are not your masters. And then what she says to Sergeant Jackram, then slightly before Sergeant Jackram, I know that you know who I am. You have waded through seas of blood for me. Perhaps we should have done better things with your life, but at least your sins were soldier sins and not the worst of them at that just a lot of like, I, I, I really like the line, the dead are not your masters.
0: There's a lot of really good lines in here, um, for sure. I wrote down, there's a lot of stuff that made me think, especially about gender in this, and about war. But I, I really liked, or I mean, I didn't like, I should say. There is a, that scene where they, where they run across what is essentially a war crime, when there's an elderly couple that they find in their cottage dead who've been killed by soldiers. Yeah. And they, uh, the couple had been old. They would not grow older. Back outside, Polly took frantic mouthfuls of air. air. Do you think those cavalrymen did it? She said at last, and then realized Maledict was shaking. Oh, the blood, she said, um, and then skipping down. I'm fine, he said, and I can't smell horses. Why don't you use your eyes? Nice soft mud everywhere after the rain, but no hoof prints. Plenty of footprints, though. We did it. Don't be silly. We were... The vampire had reached down and pulled something out of the fallen leaves. He rubbed the mud off of it with a thumb in thin pressed brass. It was the flaming cheese badge of the ins and outs. But I thought we were the good guys said Polly weakly. If we were guys, I mean, and there's just kind of this moment where it's like, you know, they're on our side, but like in war, there's no such thing as the good guys, right? That these war crimes happen on both sides, and I mean, Jackram says that they're deserters, but the truth of the matter is is that war creates a situation in which the soldiers are deprived and they're traumatized, and, you know, they're concentrated so much on their survival that they will do a lot of horrible things. And that does that means that both sides are inherently bad. Um and so kind of challenging that idea of good guys and bad guys um in war, I thought, I thought that was very good. Yeah. All right. I think we've gotten through a lot of Monstrous Regiment. Um, there was a lot going on here. Um, I think it's interesting that this is one of the few books where, like, it went up in my estimation, but you didn't you didn't seem to like it as much, which is fine. I just think that's interesting. But next episode, we're going to be back on the chalk. Actually, we're going to be back in Lanker. Ooh. Tiffany Aching goes off to train in Hatful of Sky. Plus, we are going to read the short story, The Sea and Little Fishes. So we are going to talk about both of those next episode. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel?
1: You can find me, your headphones here and hyperfixations really. Online, you can find me still on the sinking ship that is Twitter, at Spicy Nigel, where recently I've been tweeting about uh, my eBay packages and also the fact that I am now massively lactose intolerant. Literally within the last two weeks, this has developed.
0: <laughs> wow. I'm so sorry yeah. to hear that.
1: Yeah, it's that bad that I had like a chocolate digestive... I had three chocolate digestive biscuits and that like just... It was a nightmare for my stomach.
0: I'm so sorry. As someone who also has a lot of stomach problems, it, they're the I worst. I used to love
1: milk. I was, telling, I was telling a completely unrelated story to a coworker. like unrelated to the lactose intolerance and it was about being in a like fast food restaurant Supermax. and for my drink i just ordered a large cup of milk and then i went okay yeah i see how i was dependent on milk
0: yeah (laughs) so you've been talking about that a lot on twitter
1: uh yeah i made a meme about it It was the um you know the guy in the corner they don't know and it was just they don't know i'm massively lactose intolerant and i captioned it I captioned it, who up who not processing their lactose.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a really it's a it's a hard thing. There's so much lactose everywhere. You can find me on Twitter, Blue Sky, and StoryGraph at the By And you can also find my writing on moviejohn.com. So look out for those on Moviejohn. That is moviejawn.com. You can find this. You can find us online, this podcast online, on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club or on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel.
1: Going to join up, lads, she said cheerily. There was some mumbling on the theme of yes. Good. Then stand up straight, said Polly. Let's have a look at you. Chins up. Ah, well done. Shame you didn't practice walking in trousers, and I noticed you didn't bring an extra pair of socks. They stared, mouths open. What are your names, said Polly. Your real names, please. Uh, Rosemary, said one of them. Uh, One of them began. I'm Mary, said the other. I heard girls were joining, but everyone laughed, so I thought I'd better pretend to— Oh, you can join as men if you want, said Polly. We need a few good men. The girls looked at one another. You get better swear words, said Polly, and the trousers are useful, but it's your choice. A choice, said Rosemary. Certainly, said Polly. She put a hand on the shoulder of each girl, winked at Maledicta, and added, you are my little lads, or not, as the case may be, and I will look after you. And the new day was a great big fish. The end.